You are listening to Church at the Oaks podcast, where we exist to send disciple makers of Jesus by being disciple makers of Jesus. For more information about our church, such as service times, upcoming events, or how to join a group, please visit us at churchattheoaks.com. Good morning, everybody. If we have not had the pleasure of meeting or introduction, my name is Judson Waters. I'm a student here at the University of Alabama, and I've been at Oaks since my first week on campus. Um, came here that first Sunday, immediately knew it was my church home. This is where I wanted to serve. Um, hadn't looked back since. Uh, so another reason I'm up here today is because of a little group called Preaching Cohort. Um, all my preaching cohort people in the room, I love you guys. Uh, we're led by Pastor Britton and Dave Bolin. They walk us through the ins and outs of preaching. And without them and their support, I definitely wouldn't be up here today. And I'm incredibly thankful for that group. And that group also reminds me of, well, this moment reminds me of one of our core values as a church. And a church that believes in the next generation. Not many places will let a 21-year-old get up on stage and preach to you guys today. I just hope I'm not the last one uh, to do that. <laughs> so I'm going to pray for the Holy Spirit to come, fill the place. Um, and let's get ready to dive in. Father, as I mentioned, I'm incredibly thankful for this opportunity, Lord. Um, pray that you speak through me, that you are my wisdom, that you are where I belong. Confidence, uh, even though I'm a little nervous right now, I, I pray that you quell that for me and just be my hope and my comforter in this moment. Father, I'm hopeful that you're going to speak into the hearts and into the minds of people. I pray that they open their ears, open their hearts to your word today. Father, uh, we love you. We pray for you. In your son's name, amen. Amen. All right, cool. So who in this room has been six years old before? Can I get a hand? Who's been six? Okay, a couple people, a couple people. Um, I've been six years old before, and my recollection of me as a six-year-old was I was the best six-year-old. Okay, I was um, the greatest kid. I could do no wrong. Just don't ask my family about that. They're here today, uh, and I didn't know if they were going to hear me say that. But yeah, don't ask my family. But I could be a bad little kid at times, okay? Like, I, I wasn't always this perfect angel. And a story that, a story that um, really I remember very vividly because it was a great and terrible day was when I was six years old, I would always hang out with my brother, Jake, he's right over there, but I say, hey, Jake. Um, <laughs> I would hang out with my brother and his older friends all the time when we lived in Union Springs. And the younger kids in here, or the younger brothers in here know that the, when you're hanging out with the older kids, you will do anything, anything to be cool, okay? You will do anything to fit in, entertain them, and that was no different with me. And one day we were at my friend Parker's house and somebody had the brilliant, awesome idea to ask the six-year-old to, there was this abandoned house right next door. And they said, hey Judson, uh, I want you to take a rock and I want you to break that window. And like I said, like, I am a great kid. Like, I know the difference between right and wrong and naturally I find a, the biggest rock I can and pick it up. I, I played baseball too. So the form looked really good, 
And I heaved it as hard as I could at that window. And surely enough, it broke. It broke, went right through. And for the next, like, six to seven hours, I am the man. Like, you can't tell me, like, I can do no wrong, even though I just did, like, something terrible at the end of the day. And, um, yeah, so dinner rolls around, and after dinner, my, uh, my parents sit me down, and they tell me they know what's up. See, the abandoned house wasn't technically very, not really at all abandoned. And the owner came to check his property, and he looked at the window. He saw a really, you know, rock, suspiciously rock-looking hole in his window. And he looked down and saw a really suspicious rock-looking rock on the ground. And he put two and two together, and he said, you know what, I'm going to go and talk to the next-door neighbor that, you know, has a child and they talked to his parents. His parents talked to Parker, and Parker ratted me out immediately. It didn't take him two seconds to, to throw me under the bus. Um, and my parents told me what was up, and my first thought as a six-year-old kid was, I am going to jail. Um, I just, I, don't, I didn't know what vandalism meant, but I had vandalized something. My dad's a lawyer. I, didn't know, I thought he was going to fight for me, too. Um, but yeah, I'd just done something terrible. Right, someone that's clearly wrong, something that deserves punishment. But instead, this punishment that I just knew was coming, it never came. Now, obviously, my parents, they were upset. They were disappointed. They didn't raise me to do things like that. But instead of punishing me, they came to me, and, and they loved me. They showed me mercy. They explained to me the situation. They expected that it would never happen again. I want all of us to keep that in mind as we walk through our passage today. And the passage today is going to be in Leviticus. We're going to be in Leviticus chapter 19. But before we dive into that, I want to make sure we're all caught up on the same page. This is going to go quick, so I might speak pretty fast. Just bear with me. So for the past three weeks, we've been walking through the book of Exodus. Uh, very well-known story. Moses commissioned by the Lord to bring the Israelites out of Egyptian captivity, and he succeeds. Woo, good job, Moses. Did what you were supposed to do. And they wander through the desert, and finally, God brings them to himself at Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, some pretty monumental things happen. And one, God's just chilling. He's just on top of the mountain, like in a cloud. That's, that's pretty awesome. Okay, that's pretty cool. And... You know, the Lord establishes this covenant with the people of Israel. He gives them the law, Ten Commandments. And he also commands them to build this tent of meeting called the tabernacle, which is supposed to be a place where the Lord would come down and reside with the people of Israel. And at the end of, the end of Exodus, in chapter 40, verse 34, if I can find it, it says... Uh, the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Let's rejoice. That's, an, that's a fantastic thing, right? The Lord, Israelites are probably thinking, he has brought us out of Egyptian captivity. He split the sea for our sake. He brought us to himself at the mountain. He gave us this rock that's got ten things on it. We should read that at some point. We don't know if we ever will. And they build this tabernacle. And just as it was intended, he comes down and shows himself. Why instead of rejoicing and celebration, 
Directly following verse 34 and verse 35, it says, And Moses was not able to enter the temple because the cloud covered the tent, because the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So this, this intended purpose, this communion, this place of communion between Israelites and the Lord, they can't even access it at this point because they are so unholy. They are so presence of God brings challenges that require a response. It requires them to become holy. And, and the Lord gives them the law. He gives them this law in Leviticus that explains to them how to become richly pure, morally pure. How do you have relationship with him? now that we're all caught up, we're going to be jumping into Leviticus chapter 19, verses 1 through 2. The Lord, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. We're going to be walking through this passage from the back to the front because to even understand what's expected of us, we have to first understand what the Lord means. And with that being said, the Lord is holy. Now, what does it mean to be holy? I mean, we speak about it a lot. We sing it in our songs. Most of the time, it's associated with goodness, righteousness, purity. And while those things absolutely add up to holiness, they can make you holy, we must understand that being holiness means being set apart. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26, it says, you, restates a command, restates a statement of, from the Lord. It says, you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord your God, am holy, and have separated you, and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Anonymous to being separated, being set apart, being unique. And the Lord claims holiness, does it twice. He says it in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 20. And I'm not going to sit here and act like I can explain in all the ways that the Lord is holy, that he is set apart. So I've got five quick points for you guys that are just going to try and do just that. All right, I hope you got your pens and your pencils and your notes ready because we're going to be flying through this. Um, The Lord is the definition of holiness. It does not get more set apart than the Lord. The Lord is perfection in the middle of brokenness. In a world where everything is flawed, everything is broken, He is not. His perfection. The Lord is the creator of life creator of the world, author of life. I'm going to give you guys a heads up. There's no other creator. <laughs> There's only one, and it's him. So there we see he's set apart as creator. Some other things we got. The Lord is omnipotent, all-powerful, set apart in his power. 
He is omni, omniscient. That's the word. He is omniscient, set apart in his knowledge. He is all-knowing. presence. And I hope everything else can fit under the umbrella of these terms, like his lo- he is love, he is mercy, the things about his character that set him apart. But in the Lord and his Holy Spirit, we get a great illustration from the prophet Isaiah in a vision that he has in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy. The fountains of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I, Isaiah, said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. There's a lot to unpack here. Okay, the temple, well, let me establish, Isaiah is terrified. I mean, dude is having this vision. He's in the presence of the Lord, and he is, there he is, sitting there with his robe encompassing this face. The temple that is referred to is the temple of Israel, the place where God resides. Think of it as the same thing as a tabernacle, very similar. This cloak that he has on, it's so large, it's massive. And when it says fills, it doesn't just mean it's kind of draped by his sides and it's got a big old pool around him. No, this thing is encompassing the entire space, representative of his presence. See, without the presence of God... In the temple, known as the most holy place, the temple's not holy. It's just another building. His presence that makes things holy. We also see as a seraphim cry out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. As the, the Lord's glory is woven into the fabric of existence. Now, don't go outside and like worship the trees or nothing, okay? Don't worship the rocks and the grass. Think of it like this. The way you can see your favorite artist, your favorite writer, your favorite singer, the way you see an artist in their artwork, I mean, their signature is stamped into the bottom of the page. The way your favorite writer constructs a beautiful piece of literature or way a singer, you can hear the lyrics, you can hear his voice, you know who that is. And when the Lord claims holiness, that is exactly what he means. Set apart in every possible way. Let's go back to Leviticus chapter 19. In verse 2, it also says... Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. The Lord gives us a very clear command to be holy as well. But that brings up the question, why? Why must we be holy because he is holy? In 
Remember back at the temple, the Israelites could not enter because of their unholiness. And I need you guys to get this. Unholy things cannot survive the presence or the holiness of God's presence. Ever have been able to. And this isn't a new thing. This isn't something new that just comes with the tabernacle. This has been something that we've seen really throughout the entire Bible up to this point. In Genesis, when the Lord removes Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, and again in Exodus chapter 3, when God reveals himself to Moses in the form of a burning bush, him commissioning Moses to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. He says, do not come near. He exclaims to Moses, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. All right, think of the Lord's holiness like the sun. The sun is the center of our solar system. Okay, we need the sun to survive. It gives us light. It gives us heat. Gravity, pretty important. Without the sun, we would not exist. Well, with that logic, let's just all hop on a rocket if we could and go take a day trip to the sun and just go, I don't know, get really tan. I don't know what we'd do when we got there. But we wouldn't do that, right? If you get too close to the sun, burn up. The sun is far too powerful for us to withstand it. And we see the consequences. We see the consequences of going before the Lord unclean in Leviticus chapter 10. When Aaron's sons, Aaron is Moses' brother, his right-hand man, his sons Nadab and Abihu... I think that's how you say their names. They decide that they're going to offer up this unauthorized, unwarranted incense before the Lord while they are unclean and just waltz into his presence. And their recklessness is not going punished. But this resulted in fire coming out from the Lord and consuming Aaron's sons. brings up some problems, right? How, how am I, how are we, broken people, unclean people, supposed to have relationship with the Lord? Broken bag can't clean itself, right? Can't clean itself up. Not be holy on our own. Try to establish it. Leviticus is full of rituals and sacrifices and, and the laws, the laws that the Israelites cannot uphold. Remember, we're in that same boat. If we were there, we wouldn't be able to uphold it either. Chapter 16 covers this day, this day of atonement. A example of what it took for the Israelites to go before the Lord unclean. Chapter starts in chapter 16 with, with God coming to Moses and saying, Moses, Moses, tell Aaron 
not to come into the most holy place whenever he chooses. Aaron, you've got to do a couple things before you can do that. What Aaron had to do, and this is going to go pretty quick, this is to establish the difficulty of going before the Lord at this time. Aaron had to sacrifice a bull for his sins. He would sacrifice a bull. Then uh, they would find a goat. The community of Israel would cast their sins onto this goat and send the goat into the wilderness to be a scapegoat. Then the Lord would have to, the Lord, Aaron would have to put on these sacred linen garments and, and clothes, a tunic, undergarments, a sash, the whole nine. He'd have to go burn some incense to the Lord, offer up, burnt offerings. And after all that, he's finally ritually pure. Then he must take another goat, bring it before the presence of the Lord in the temple. He must sacrifice it. And now he is successfully atoned for the sins of the people of Israel. A lot of things to do from where we sit. A process. This is the day that took place annually. Chapter ten, verses one through four, directly addresses the day of atonement. It says, "For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never." By the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And why would we do that? Chapter 10, verses 12 through 14, uh, immediately following the bulls and rams passage says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. God in the flesh, starting to see a theme here, he did not leave his people stranded. Though the law we could not fulfill, he defeated the sin in the world when he lived a sinless life. He defeated death when he rose from it three days later. And you know what he did all of it? 
have relationship with us. Accept Jesus, his spirit enters our hearts and we begin to become sanctified. And again, ladies and gentlemen, sanctification is the act of something being made holy. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 21 says, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he is a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, Set apart as holy, it's all caps up there, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. the journey starts right here and for those of us that might have gotten wrapped up in the whole Israelites and us today I want to tell a story from 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 my testimony I've been raised in church my whole life my, my family has done that with me I come from a long line of believers and followers of Jesus always known about God. I've never questioned his existence. I've never questioned Jesus's sacrifice for me on the cross. I hadn't made him the Lord of my life. I mean, what does it mean to die to yourself and take up your cross? I remember the day that just like the Israelites who have been watching God, I remember the day very clearly when the same realization hit me at 19 years old just a couple years ago. Realization that I didn't have a relationship with God. That's not the end of my story, not the end of yours, and it doesn't have to be for anybody anymore. Because Jesus came, and and all the things that that we just walked through, we just read that he did for us. Promise that sanctification is real. My band could come on up. Uh, they're going to lead us in a time response in a second. But while they're making their way up here, um, to my believers in the room, those who have experienced Jesus and have felt the Holy Spirit making them new creation, it doesn't start right, doesn't stop. Sanctification is a continuous process to the end of your life. 
just as Jesus was gracious, graciously extended to you by someone in your life, it's now your job as people that have accepted him, joining the Great Commission to extend Jesus to other people. If we've experienced new life, why wouldn't we want others to experience the same thing? My non-believers in the room, I promise you we do not have to run from his presence anymore. Hope you've heard today that our God is relational. God that wants your problems, he wants your doubts, he wants your burdens. Know that you are loved. Know that he's with you. We do not have to run from his presence anymore. We don't have to do it. We have next steps at the back. As a church, I, I'm going to be vulnerable here because I've really been feeling this, and I'm guilty of it too. We take that, we take next steps for granted. There's a team of people back there. There's a whole church that wants to help you discern that, and that's not just for next steps. Isn't for non-believers. That's not for believers. It's for everybody because there's always a next step to obedience. It never ends. Sanctification doesn't end. Obedience never ends until you are with the Father. So I'm going to pray, and our band is going to lead us. And after I'm done praying, that is your time. And I'm so serious. Go back there and find out what the next step is. Always another step to obedience. Let us pray. Father, being a relational God, a loving God, a God that wants us, a God that came down from the heavens for our sake, just to have a relationship with us. We no longer are underneath this law that held us down, that reminded us that we are not good enough because you came down, you fulfilled it for us delivered us from that and anyone who accepts you is being made holy Father we love you we praise you we call on you at this time lead us to our next steps and it's in your son's name Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. For more sermons like this, you can give us a follow at Spotify or Apple Music. If you want more information about our church, you can check us out at churchattheoaks.com. Church, you are sent.